Well, hello everyone, and welcome back to Popcorn. Last week when I uploaded the first episode, I was so eager to get it started that I kind of neglected to introduce myself and just kind of barged straight into things. I didn't even really think about that until after I had put the first episode out there, and by then it was kind of too late. So I'm starting out this week by doing what I should have done then, and providing a little bit of information about myself retroactively about popcorn and what this is going to look like. So first of all, me. My name's Steve Drost. I live outside of Vancouver, Canada with my family. Two kids that live here, one that lives otherwhere, my wife, occasional homestay students, and my dog. I'm not going to tell you about my work because frankly it's not that interesting. But I'm going to tell you that I have loved books and movies and popular music all of my life. I was a literature major in university because anything else I could possibly picture myself doing looked way too much like work. Since I was a kid, I was happiest when I was reading a book, and a lot of the time that's still the case. But like a lot of people, I don't read as much as I used to because reading has sadly become something of a chore. There are some lifestyle-related reasons for that, but I have learned recently that, interestingly enough, there are actual physical, environmental reasons for that as well. I might go into that in a later podcast, but for the moment I would just briefly refer you to a book that may interest you. Uh, The book is called The Shallows, What the Internet is Doing to Our Brains by an American journalist named Nicholas Carr. won't go into the details right now, but the basic premise of the book is that reading online is not as healthy for your brain as reading the printed page, and that we may actually learn and understand less of a thing when we read it on a screen than we do if we read it printed on paper. It's kind of a scary thing to think about, especially since I think you could say it has something of a ring of truth to it, and by that I mean it's something that we feel may be true when we hear it. That doesn't necessarily mean that it's objectively or empirically true, but it feels right. So one of my favorite authors is Stephen King. There are a lot of reasons for that, and I won't go into them all right now. I do want to point out that I understand perfectly well all of the popular reasons for not reading King's books. That they're not that well written, that he has what people call a tin ear for language, and the most popular one, that his work stirs up no more than a base prurient interest through its exploration of grotesque and often unpleasant subjects. And people ask questions like, why would you subject yourself to such things as the monsters and the other evils that King writes about when there are much more noble and beautiful things in the world? I seem to hear this question most often from people who, like myself, are Christians uh, and who seem to believe that it's not possible to be a fan of both Stephen King and Jesus at the same time. And I'm here to tell you that uh, I am, and it is, possible. Now, it's been my experience that King's appeal isn't really in the vulgarity of his subject matter. I will freely admit that he writes about some things that may be difficult for some people to enjoy or even to accept. But for me, the appeal of Stephen King's work has always been primarily in the nobility of some of the best of his characters a nobility that often plays itself out against a background of dark, twisted evil. It is not about glorifying the evil. It's about finding joy in the characters that push back against that evil. 
even if they aren't always successful. And I have to say that in the case of Stephen King, it's important to remember that they frequently are not successful. But that's okay. The things that we admire most about these characters aren't necessarily those things that make them ultimately successful, but rather in the things that make them try. The way I like to think about it best is that he takes extraordinary circumstances, some of them extremely frightening, and puts ordinary people in the midst of those situations, and then he applies pressure to see what the results will be. Now, if you haven't guessed already, I will be talking a lot about King's writing. In fact, the majority of the initial episodes of this podcast are going to be about The Stand, which is one of his longest novels. Of course, length alone doesn't make for a good novel or story necessarily, as we may see later if I decide to explore The Tommyknockers, a Stephen King book which is not quite as good. During the course of the program, I hope to talk about some of my favorite movies as well. I like science fiction. I would love to tell you that I also enjoy speculative fiction, but that would not be 100% true. What is true is that I like science fiction because it tends to speculate about the future, but that I probably couldn't give you the name of a single book that I've read that specifically fits into the genre of speculative fiction, unless you were to say that science fiction and speculative fiction could theoretically be interchangeable terms. Since I'm not sure everyone out there would agree with that assertion, I'll just say that I like science fiction and the idea of speculative fiction and leave it at that. One more thing, why am I calling this popcorn? Well, a couple of reasons. First of all, it's my favorite snack. There's nothing I like better than to sit down with a big bowl of freshly popped popcorn, some hot olive oil, and a little bit of salt. It's supposed to be one of the healthiest snacks for you, although I must confess that I have not been eating a lot of it at present because it doesn't fit in with my specific dietary plan at this exact moment. But I also liked popcorn for the name of a podcast because the idea was to have the program be about pop culture, and I've been told from time to time that I can be a little corny. That in itself may be a little corny, but not corny enough that I want to change the name. Last week's episode was something of an initial exploration of The Stand, what it's generally about, and a bit of history about the publication of the novel. Today I'd like to dig down a little bit into two specific characters in the story, and the character I'm going to start with is Nadine Cross. Nadine is a young woman, probably in her 30s, who was an elementary school teacher before the plague came. According to the description in the book, she's very beautiful. Her most arresting physical feature is her long, dark hair, which has what King describes as a skein of pure white running through it. I most often think of a skein as a unit of measure for yarn, so I looked up a definition on the interwebs and came up with a length of thread or yarn loosely coiled and knotted. And I think that works pretty well. The thing about King's characters is that they often aren't morally black and white, and Nadine is no exception. When we as the readers first meet her, she appears to be a pleasant person, but there's also something about her initially that we're not sure we quite trust. We soon learn that her motivations are colored by some rather odd things in her past. So one of today's questions is, what should we think of Nadine Cross? And the truth is, personally, I don't really know what to think of her. 
She seems like a very strong sort of principled character, but she's one of the only characters I've ever met who's principled for all the wrong reasons. Which makes me ask, why does she do the things that she does? For example, why does she throw her lot in with the Dark Man years before the superflu even happens? Her behavior is bizarre. And so I've come to one or two possible conclusions about her. The first is that Possibly, she's just a badly created character. Her existence just doesn't make any sense. She's clearly capable of being kind and gentle. She takes care as best she can with Joe, and she probably would have made a good mother for just about any human child. She's a good teacher. She has a rapport with children. King does a good job of fleshing out just about everything about her except for her motivation. It remains murky through the entire story. This is particularly true when you realize that she knows full well what she's getting herself into. It seems as though she has never had any illusions about it. She's just been waiting her entire life for the Dark Man to make his move. She even questions herself after she moves in with Harold. She lets him fulfill his dark fantasies with her and do all kinds of degrading sexual things to her, and even at one point muses that it's enough to make her wonder what kind of a man her fiancé really is. And by her fiancé, of course, King means the Dark Man. But she never wavers in her determination to go to him, even eventually sacrificing Harold without so much as a second thought. And I've never really understood why. Why does she resist Larry's advances at first? And why does she wait until she knows it's too late to allow him to do anything? By the time she resolves to let Larry take her virginity, he has already moved in with Lucy and refuses, to his credit, to betray Lucy. It seems like a form of cognitive dissonance to wait until she knows there's no chance before she goes to Larry, and he rejects her. It's like part of her wanted that all along. But why? I've never been able to get my head around it. The second possibility, which is sort of fairly similar to the first one, is that she's just insane. This would encompass all the criteria from the first suggestion, but would then let the author off the hook for creating such a flawed character. She's clearly not responsible for her actions. Now, the only problem with this theory is that other than her devotion to the Dark Man, she doesn't display any other type of insane behavior. All of the things that she does that could be considered out of the ordinary are consistent with the pact she has made with herself or with the Dark Man, depending on how you look at it, and just lead back to that. When the other characters dream of Mother Abigail, and she lies and says that she doesn't dream, it's because her dreams are darker than theirs, and she doesn't want anyone to know about them. All of those years of keeping other men at arm's length it's because the Dark Man wants her to save herself for him. And other than that, she doesn't behave in any way irrationally. She's made her choice, and while it's plausible to say that her choice was insane, she's otherwise single-minded about accomplishing her goal. Now we could blame this on the author. It's easy to conclude that she's maybe just a badly drawn character. Of course, 
it's important too to remember that the best characters are ones that display real human flaws and inconsistencies and there's no arguing that she does that but she's just too inconsistent to be believable in my opinion it's difficult for me to admit that because as i've said she is a well-rounded character and a thoroughly consistent character but in the end she just doesn't make sense there's not enough justification for her choice to make her believable. Even Harold is more believable than her. He makes a lot of the same choices, but it's well established why he makes them. He's been an outcast most of his life. He's permanently damaged because of it. His emotional development has been badly stunted earlier in life by poor self-image and a father who was to all practical intents abusive. He never beat Harold that we know of, but he viewed him with contempt, assumed he was a homosexual, with all of the stigma and negative connotation that went along with that. He was not physically abusive, and he was not, from what we can tell, open about his verbal abuse. But his disgust for Harold poisoned their relationship forever. In addition to that, when Harold opens up and admits his feelings for Fran, it's all she can do to contain her contempt for him. And he's not fooled by her for a moment. As she herself notes, Harold may be many things, but stupid is not one of them. Now, given his character and background, it's not surprising that Harold becomes who he becomes. Nadine, I can't figure that out. Now, I've always felt a great deal of pity for Harold Lauder. He was hard done by his peers and later used and tossed aside by the dark man. His problems were largely but not entirely of his own making, however. In the end, it came down to a matter of choice. He did have several opportunities to amend his ways, and each time he chose poorly. His dying declaration, though perhaps noble in his own mind, was really as pitiful as Stu, Larry, Glenn, and Ralph found it to be. In the end, he squandered all of his potential for nobility, real nobility, not the kind of idealistic perceived nobility that caused him to carve his initials into a heart with Franny's name on a barn rafter. He squandered that potential by virtue of his poor choices, and his final act of suicide was only slightly mitigated by his realization, far too late to do any good, that he had been used, and that he wanted to die in his right mind, after having offered up an almost useless deathbed apology to no one in particular. I think Harold Lauder is one of the most tragic characters in this story. Stephen King often creates both characters and situations that seem as though they could eventually be resolved in a satisfactory manner. Some situations look as though they could get out of control in the same way the characters do. You hope and wish for them to be resolved in a positive manner, but King doesn't often do happy endings. So in the back of your mind, you're pretty sure that this isn't going to work out well. I always wanted Harold to come to a good end. I guess you could say that what I wished for him, more than anything, was redemption. And there are several places in the story where it seems as though he could almost achieve that redemption. For example, when he's made up his mind to kill Stu Redman, 
and finds himself unable to because he seems to be almost overcome by Stu's kindness and respect. This happens on the mountainside when it seems as though all hope of finding Mother Abigail has been lost. He thinks later about how close he has come to bringing his plan to fruition, to killing Stu and Glenn and the others. And King notes that at the last moment, some fraying cord of sanity had held instead of giving way. This is the dance King often indulges in with his readers. The will he, won't he question that keeps his fans wanting more, always. But as I noted earlier, Harold chooses poorly when it comes to changing his ways. The dastardly thing about King's storytelling is the way he makes Harold's ultimate decision feel like the sane option, as though he had recovered from a brief bout of insanity, where he had thought about not committing a brash and unreasoning homicide, and regained his wits in time for sense to reassert himself, so that he can go back to his original plan, murder. That's crazy. Okay, time's up for today. Tune in next week when I'll start talking about my two favorite characters in the story, Stu Redman and Franny Goldsmith. In the meantime, if you want to contact me, you can find me on Twitter under the username at CybernetictTiger. You can email me at sdrost01, that's Sierra Delta Romeo Oscar Sierra Tango 01, at gmail.com, or you can find me on Instagram with the username sdrost01. I also do have a blog that I don't update much at the moment, but I might start again. That's at stevedrost.wordpress.com. And thanks for listening.